Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 90. Thanks so much for joining me, as always. Uh, before I begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. No matter where you're watching this, there's something you can click on that will help spread poetry around the internet, and that always really helps. That's the one thing you can do. We don't ask for donations or anything like that. We just ask that you click the like button and subscribe and uh, give it a review on iTunes and things like that. That would be really helpful. Now, today's guest on the Rattlecast is a poet that we published a, a while ago, but um, Janae Bauer is uh, sort of the... She literally wrote the book on ekphrastic poetry just now. It just came out. And um, we have the ekphrastic challenge, as you know, and so I thought it would be really fun to talk to Janae about ekphrastic poetry here. And uh, let me read... Uh, Janae's bio here. Um, in addition to the ekphrastic writer, which just came out, um, Bauer is the author of two ekphrastic poetry collections, Coordinates of Yes and The Body's Physics. Uh, she teaches creative writing in Seattle and is a columnist at the Ekphrastic Review and an assistant editor for the literary journal Boulevard. And uh, really excited to have her on today. Here she is, Janae Bauer. How are you doing, Janae? Hi, thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, it's just, it's my pleasure. Um, I've always really enjoyed ekphrastic poetry. Um, and you are like like the ekphrastic guru or something, apparently. I mean, you, have, you have three books focusing on ekphrastic poetry, two of your own, and then this new book, The Ekphrastic Writer, that just came out. Do you want to start out by talking a little bit about, um, uh, first of all, I guess, what drew you to ekphrastic poetry in the first place? In the, in the pre in the prologue of the book, there, it, you explain the first ekphrastic poem you wrote, I think. Do you want to just tell everybody at home what that was and what drew you to it in the first place? Yeah, so first of all, I, I should mention that I started off uh, as a scientist, and I had my sights set on medical school. And that didn't work, and so I got a job in the sciences, but I did not find that terribly fulfilling. And on a lark, I took a poetry class and really liked it and got a lot of encouragement from my classmates and my teacher at the time. And so I'm, I was always in that space of just being open to, to subject matter. Um, I, I knew that writing from my life didn't really appeal to me, so I was just always on the lookout. Um, so I had a particular chance to visit New York City. This was in 1995. I visited the Guggenheim Museum, um, and this visit was shortly after I had taken my first backpacking trip through Europe in which I used Rick Steves, um, who wrote Europe Through the Back Door. I used his guide to museums called Mona Winks, and that was really my entree to art history and how might someone like me, a science major, who didn't feel particularly creative or imaginative, could enter that space of, of the art world. So I went to the Guggenheim and went with my journal because I was just this budding little writer of poems and just super excited to collect the world. And I saw this painting by a German painter, George Baselitz, and the title of the piece was The Poet. And it was this crude little sketch of this like serpent individual in this vortex of browns and reds. And it seemed to me a commentary on... Um, a poet being um, 
you know, despondent and dark and brooding. And I just thought that was so interesting that a visual artist would have uh, a comment about, about poets. And so I sat on the floor, much to the chagrin of the security guards, I sat on the floor of the Guggenheim and uh, wrote my first, which I didn't know at the time, wrote my first ekphrastic poem. And naively, I called the poem Poet Describing Painter Describing Poet. And it wasn't until um, long even after graduate school, so in 2004, I was um, I had the occasion of being interviewed live for NPR, and the, the interviewer said, um, oh, tell me about ekphrasis. And I was sort of like, uh. <laughs> um, hence, I, I hate live interviews because um, some of these questions can be really tough. Um, but it was there in that moment that I learned the term ekphrasis, and then I was just like gangbusters. I went to the internet, and back then, 2004, um, I still have the printed pages. There are about three pages of, and I, I only assumed that ekphrasis related to poetry. So back then, 2004, there were only three pages on ekphrastic poetry. Oh, wow. um, and so it's been really interesting to see, you know, how the world has changed and how now, you know, it's the subgenre. And um, so super excited to continue to work in this the space of ekphrasis. 25 years later. Yeah, that's just so fascinating. It's so fascinating, too, that you come from the science background. Because what I loved reading through the book uh, was how much detail you go into um, the, 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 the why behind it. And the, you talk about the left brain and the right brain, and you talk about the, um, just so much um, of, of the what goes into art. And um, that was really fascinating to, to read. I can't believe that it does seem like... Um, when I introduced the word and we were doing the ekphrastic, ch- I say ekphrastic. Can you say ekphrastic? Is there a... Ekphrasis, ekphrastic. Ekphras- yeah, oh, it's ekphrastic, right. ekphrasis. Okay. I yeah. just didn't know. Um, yeah, so I don't even know how to pronounce the word. And when <laughs> I when I used to, um, you know, share this and, and do um, ekphrastic poems, um, people would ask what that means. And I have to send them the definition because they didn't know. Um, and, and it's interesting that it spread so much um, so rapidly there's the the ekphrastic review now uh which your your work with as a columnist um what what inspired you to write to compile it all into a whole book it's a textbook like book or or a writer's guide type book yeah i would call it a, a guidebook um a couple of weeks ago, actually, I had the occasion to hear Julia Alvarez uh, in a Zoom event, and she talked about writing to the spaces in, in in the library shelves. And that's definitely, it was definitely the spirit behind me writing this guidebook. Um, firstly, and I, I, I talk about about it in the book, but firstly, I wanted a guidebook that that I would have wanted as as a young practitioner, and secondly, I wanted a guidebook for instructors because I started teaching ekphrasis. I started bringing in images to my students um, when I was in grad school in 1999. Um, back then, I uh, taught. I volunteer taught for a year. Um, at Eastern State uh, Mental Institution, Eastern State Hospital. And um, it was just this, I just had this idea that I want to bring into that space um, beauty. And um, uh, and and encourage my students to go to a place beyond you know, the walls in which they're being institutionalized, some of them, um, you know, involuntarily. And 
so so all of the years that I've taught ekphrasis, last 20 years, I felt um, I've just struggled to put together, you know, material and also find contemporary writing on ekphrasis and then also just the how to. So all along, I was, you know, just, you know, writing up exercises for my students and, you know, compiling lessons and um, assembling works of art and um, and. Uh, examples of of ekphrasis and um so it was just it was time for me to finally put that together and um you know the whole idea that one door closes another one opens so i had for many years while as an adjunct i had an office job i worked at a medical clinic and i there were layoffs so i got got laid off in october of 2017 and by that summer 2018 i still hadn't found a job and i thought you know i really should resurrect this project that i have um because i had started it you know kind of in vain in 2004 and then i was thinking i would go into a phd program in 2007 2008 and that never materialized and so i called a friend my friend tom hunley and i said um look i have these papers on ekphrasis what do you think it is and he said because I just in my full, full file folder if you can imagine it just said ekphrastic project you know and he goes well maybe it's a work of criticism and I said no I'm not a critic I'm not a scholar I'm a practitioner and so so the the spirit from which I come is you know if you are open if you are open to investigating possibilities if you're open to aesthetics and you are interested in deep looking and beauty um, then I want to help you get there and so he goes, oh, well, I don't know, maybe maybe it's a textbook. And so um, so that was August of 2018. And by January 2019, I was signing a contract with the scholarly press McFarland to write the thing. Um, and it's always nice to um, to have that contract while you're writing the thing, um, as opposed to like, well, I'll, I'll write this and and who knows if I'll get it accomplished? Who knows if I'll finish it? Who knows if anyone will pick it up? Um, and so it just it it worked out. So I'm grateful. Yeah, that's really great. And, and it's kind of um, the timing is a little bit could have been like if it was before the, the the quarantine the pandemic it would be the perfect book to have while you're quarantined because there's there's like a prompt on every page there's a, there's so much you know you could sort of hold yourself up and just dive into ekphrastic poetry with this book so if anybody uh, wants to pick up a copy and, and do that I, I mean Vicky Miko already says I have to get this book and I, I'd recommend it because you really can um, you know it, it's a book that's generative and not just um, it, not just examples and, and, and sort of the background of it but but, but it's also it, it makes you create and maybe it, it, it's inspiring. Um, yeah, it's funny. It's funny you had mentioned the writing prompts because um, when I was so this was May of 2020 when I was having to write kind of the market copy for the book and, and, and get it to, to the publicist at McFarland. And so I wanted to go through and figure out like, you know, what are the like additional features, you know? And so I did on my Word document, I did, um, you know, tell me how many times I wrote the word writing invitation. And my computer spits out, well, 200 times you wrote the word writing invitation. And I said that, I said that that can't be right. And so I went through the manuscript and I counted how many times and and it was 200. So there are 200 writing invitations, very open-ended for all genres. And yeah, that was my goal was um, 
to stay away from criticism, to stay away from, you know, like cerebrally, you know, why do we make a phrases? Because there's so many, there's so many books out there, but they're criticism. Mm -hmm. And I, I did not want to be a part of that. I wanted to write a book that celebrated the visual arts and the literary arts and that intersection thereof. Yeah, that's it, it ties so well just with um with my concept of what poetry is in general cuz I I don't care about criticism or or pushing the boundaries. I think what poetry does, which is it's great and everybody should do is it expands your consciousness and it makes you think more deeply about the world. And ekphrastic writing is like a door into that experience too. It's like sort of an easy way, you know, you encounter a piece of art, you have this this deep response that you can't articulate. And then you like find a way to engage with that response and articulate it and understand your life better and, and the world better. And um, that's what I love about poetry. And that's what I love about ekphrastic writing. And, um, and the book really ties that together perfectly. Do you want to, you have a whole PowerPoint presentation. Um, do you want to start at the beginning of that and, and show, um, I don't know, where, where do you want to start? Um, you know, let's let's go through. I have a PowerPoint that um, kind of overviews the book and shows um, the images. And so I can talk a little bit about the making of the book. Um, shall we start there? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we do that? And I should say that, you know, a lot of people, I think the majority of people watch after the or listen, I should say, after the fact, like when they're driving to work throughout the week or whatever. But if you can, you should come and watch this episode on YouTube because um, or Facebook or whatever, because uh, there are going to be some great visuals. So, so please uh, find us on YouTube and, and watch this too. But here, we'll go to that. Here we go. This is the shared screen. And there we go. This is the cover of the book here, The Ekphrastic Writer. So, um, so here we have this, this gallery space. Um, but not only that, but we have a maker. So we have an artist in the foreground. We have a model. We actually have um, the person who's commissioned the artwork. And so therein lies an interesting, um, you know, uh, roles and agendas. Um, and then we have light coming in from the clear story on the left. We have um, depth perception and illusion. Um, we not only have, um, you know, images and, and, and facsimiles of actual paintings, but also sculpture, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so insofar as exact facsimiles, in the foreground on the right, um, we have the money lender and his wife. So this is an actual uh, painting that came out, I want to say in the 1500s. Um, and so this, this artist um, made these facsimiles, which I thought was absolutely brilliant for for the book and McFarland went for it so um, so there is that piece a little little closer up um, so I won't go through this point by point but in the book um, I want to get I wanted to offer an introduction to you know how the mind works so I was raised by two fantastic people um, one was a visual artist um, in which she I saw her making art and we always had um, original art on the walls and so for me it felt very close to uh, it wasn't um 
abstract to me? Uh, who is an artist and how does she make make a piece and, and, and where does that final product end up? And then secondly, I was raised by a psychologist and he taught me a lot about how the mind works and perception and how seeing is actually uh, from the brain. We don't see with the eyes, we see from the brain. And so if we think of each of us as having a unique brain, that means that we're all seen uniquely. Um, and so one of the things I love to do with my students is, you know, allow many students to choose the same art piece in order to write ekphrastically because it's so interesting for the whole class to hear how necessarily different their approaches are to, to that particular piece. Um, so early art engagement, I talk about ink blots and psychology, um, the history of ekphrasis, um, and um, I uh, list out ekphrastic conventions of which I had arrived at about 26 of them. And then insofar as topics of ekphrasis in the book, I talk about beauty. Um, and then I go into how artists actually make art. So I go into these various disciplines, drawing, painting, watercolor, printmaking, photography. And then I talk about what is abstract art, conceptual assemblage, mixed media, performance art, installation art. Um, and, and beyond looking at uh, a, a piece of visual art, what I also found, found really compelling insofar as like my own writing is concerned is um, an interest in in the making. So what goes on in the artist's studio? And so then you are thinking about models or you're thinking about still lifes or you're thinking about an artist who works outside. Um, and then the museum is an experience unto itself, right? So for many of us, we view art in galleries and museums and in there is so much fodder. So I looked at art conservation. I looked at artists who actually work in museums, artist studies series, artist artifacts, um, stolen art. I thought was a really interesting thing to discuss, um, censorship and, and whatnot. And then I go into creative writing. I'm really interested in the creative process. So I talk about Peter Elbow's uh, free writing technique. I talk about surrealists. I talk about the, the relationship between the right brain and the left brain. Um, and then uh, I have a sec section on community of artists and writers and collaboration. And so with this book, I'm hoping that writers and readers will, will feel inspired to collaborate with others, to collaborate with other writers, to collaborate with other visual artists and see what can be make of that, made of that. Um, and so one of the things that I was so, um, well, again, the mother of necessity, uh, mother of invention and necessity, um, I had no money <laughs> when I was creating this, this book. And so I uh, settled on art. Um, and that took a very long time in terms of figuring out what global art I wanted to tout and what was a great representation of, of female and male artists across the globe. And then I took links to that. And then once I had secured the rights, um, I took those images and I reached out to people and I said, hey, would you be willing to write a piece, especially for, for my book? And so... Um, I had 30 writers who said yes, and I'm absolutely grateful to them. I found this person online, um, Sandy's very, she's a, a dear friend now. Um, so she has this, um, she sets up these um, strange figures in a real space and then photographs them. Yes, I should say um, that painting, uh, there, there's poems by uh, Kim Edinizio and other people. Um, you know, there's several poems that you share in the book about just this, 
this uh, piece in particular, which is uh, just to describe it for the people who are just listening, it's, a, it's sort of a pond park scene, and then the valley's babies um, moving around, and, and there's I think two or three different pieces, right? That um, that, that go after this, uh, that are written after this this uh, piece. Yeah, and they, so and they go in very different directions, which is the fascinating thing: is seeing seeing multiple uh, multiple pieces of writing after the same image, which is what's what's so fun about the ekphrastic challenge too, is seeing what everybody comes up with. Yes, and it's interesting you would bring that up because I all along it was it, this whole project of writing this book was really interesting for me because I realized that at every turn I needed to be creative. I needed to be able to to go with the flow as an artist. And so when I had both Laura and Kim choose this image instead of saying no, you know, sorry that image is already taken, choose another image, I thought, well that that would be interesting to have them both respond to this. Um, And then likewise, I had a friend who wanted to write two separate pieces to one image. So then you have one poet who has very different takes. So that was interesting as well. Um, So all sorts of like um, creative moments came up in this whole process that I could not have predicted at all. Well, I don't want to go through uh, all the images because... um... You know, people. Some people are listening, but I, I want to ask about. There's something really interesting that I had no idea about that comes up in the book, which is that originally people. Um, who was it? It was Roland uh, Barthes, the the critic who called um, who who thought of um, ekphrastic writing as parasitic. He said, and there's a lot of talk from the critics of the fact of the way that um, that it's it's considered like somehow stealing the art from the artist. And that, that was just such a fascinating thing because I never, I had no idea that people had that conception of um, ekphrasis is, is something. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about that, about why people thought that and, and why they're wrong? Because I think it's very clear that they're wrong. Well, here's my take. My take is that critics need a job. So they need to find things to be <laughs> critical about. <laughs> Um, and, and that's, that's fine for them. But the, the irony is that in, in my travels, and I've had a lot of them, um, I've never personally met a visual artist who has had that attitude. Um, so I, I, I just believe it's a farce and it's, it's another reason because there's so much criticism and I don't just mean like, you know, like a scholarly stance about it, racist, but, but criticism on this approach that I just thought, you know, I'm just tired of that noise and I want to introduce, you know, another voice into the mix and the voice that, that I have in, in this project is, um, oh, the possibilities. And also, you know, the, the you know, the, the irony that's, the, that's antithetical to the critics take is that you know it's it's good for the it's good for the visual arts for for writers to engage because you know we're necessarily every time someone out there your listeners have written an acrostic poem and they're up front maybe they offer an epigraph of you know the 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 um off the visual artists work or they title their piece like the piece of the the visual artist, they are necessarily introducing their readers to not only an artwork, but, but potentially an artist 
who is perhaps unknown are they right and so then they can go and research and so it's 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 good for the art world it's good for the literary world um so yeah so i think it's a farce i don't give them much credence but you know when i'm in that space of wanting to give people the benefit of the doubt i say oh those poor sobs you know they they need a job so that's that's fine for them yeah well it comes from i think that you know the word originally just meant description so it was like considered descriptive writing at first and, and I think there's a fascinating way that that parallels with with art itself. The sort of I have this um, sort of belief, I think, that that art originally started as a way to like record the world, you know. But gradually, as we had technology, let us have new ways. You know, you can take a photograph. You don't need to make a painting. And so the idea that that. Um, art always had these two functions, which was both it was exploring the unknown and exploring the sort of subconscious mind and the way and the connections that the the right brain makes that you talk about when you're talking about the different sections of the brain, and then it had to do with with replicating the world, and um, and 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 now um, the replication is just doesn't matter because we have so much you know there's the printing press and there's the internet and there's video and there's TV. and so art becomes all about the exploration and not about just um, recording. And um, and I think that the sort of the conception of ekphrastic writing as getting in the way of, of just stealing sort of the meaning from the artwork comes from that that sort of sense that we're still just recording or something. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also it's also ignorant um, that that stance of stealing or upstaging the art, because um, you look at, for example, Ray Armitrout has she wrote a poem for the ekphrastic writer. Um, her poem is called Much. And um, she she wrote it after a piece and she 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 did not offer an attribution, no epigraph. Um, she didn't title the piece. And so if you were just to read the piece on your own, you would have no idea that it was ekphrastic and because she she doesn't have to to broadcast what her subject matter is um and yet that yet it was the image that allowed her to create what she calls a thought experiment um so it was the image that allowed her to make this poem and once she made the poem she no longer needs the image um, so it's what I like about bringing this exercise into my classroom is that it becomes a great um springboard for people especially if they think that they're they're suffering from from writer's block or they want to write something beyond themselves yeah and, and there's a way that that all art is, is participating in this dialogue like it's like the grand dialogue of humanity and, and so you're sort of you're 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 re reacting as if you're having a conversation with the piece when you're making it like you're adding your own thoughts you're not just describing what's going on you're engaging it within like the creation that's living in your mind or something like that. Um, do, do you want to um, start sharing some examples of, of poems, um, your own or, or others? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to read to you from a work in progress. So um, over the years, I've probably written um, poems to... I think 500 visual artists, and so what I'm settled what I've settled on for this newest collection is I'm I'm writing to the visual art of one author or one one artist uh, Andrew Wyeth, and what I decided to do was um, I was thinking about fragments and what can be made of fragments, and so what I arrived at was um, created like deconstructed ekphrastic poems. So another way of saying that is I have come up with 
of fictional, fictional autobiographical musings. So from the perspective of Andrew Wyeth, um, where he is basically talking about his creative process for the paintings that, that he made. Um, and I call them all footnotes. And so you could actually imagine these footnotes existing underneath the, the painting um, that gives you sort of an insight of, of who he was and what he was thinking about as, as he was making these pieces. And so I did a lot of research. I have some of his... Uh, I have lines and quotes, or sorry, lines in italics that are his actual words. And then I have quotes from his favorite poet, Frost, and his favorite naturalist, Thoreau. Um, and so uh, I have 12 of them that I've finished. I won't read all of them, and eight of which I have been published. So what I'll do is I'm going to show, let's see, I'm going to show... I am firstly gonna just show the poem so you can see it's in it's in footnote um, format um, where I have the superscripts and you can see that there's some italics so the very end of this line of this poem says I have this hate within me that's something that he's actually said and then in quotes I have um, you can see the first quote is Thoreau and then I have definitions you can see realism and tempera um, as conventions of of the footnote process so I'm going to show the image as I read um, so that you could perhaps see what Andrew Wyeth was seeing and working on as he was doing it. Andrew Wyeth's footnotes to Christina's world. All good things are wild and free, Thoreau. Realism, Cushing, Maine. Observing will teach you the world. Compose with your imagination. Tempera. Use a technique unlike your father's. Toss the egg whites. Some landscapes require white wine. Their house high on the hill. The distance she's traveled to distance herself from it. Eventually, the arms must drag her body either way she chooses to go. For now, she prefers to sit among the summer hues. The slope that holds her seated body does not judge. A breeze whips her hair from her face. The loyal earth beneath her feet, companionable. I painted my imaginings of her seeking the quietude and stillness of nature. To sit alone with her thoughts, which are themselves quiet. Restorative silence, I suppose, is what she craves after each day that's burdened by a dependent body. The poet writes the history of his body, thorough. A woman cannot live with a pack of wolves or in the tree canopies. The collective is stronger than the individual. At times, she just needs to be on a grassy knoll and to remain in a space of no choices, to find grounded purpose in a singular conscious moment on earth. 
The earth I tread on is not a dead inert mass. It is a body, has a spirit, is organic and fluid to the influence of its spirit and to whatever particle of that spirit is in me. Thoreau. Upper eye, oculus tuos. Blush, rose, cobblestone, honey, loden, peridot, bay leaf, glacier, molasses, brandy. I have this hate within me. And that was uh, footnotes to Christina's World, 1948. And that was published, that poem was published by... Um, Tin House. Andrew Wise footnotes to Trodden Weed. Sometimes it begins in a field. Summer hay folded in on itself with prickly brittleness. I can paint the crunch of boots on the dry of goldenrod grass. Self-portrait, an abstraction, punctured lung, Albert Durer. He came to me in a dream, so the dry brushwork is for him. A picture of two booted feet walking inside a knee-length coat. I'm stepping toward the foreground. See the line painted black? It's the flat line that we encounter every day and do not know it. I know things I shouldn't. The weeds. It wasn't time. It's futile worrying about what harm your steps might do. Apure oculus tuos, fawn, celadon, olivine, snow, camel, oatmeal, chestnut, straw, russet, black. I took a walk in the woods and came out taller than the trees, thorough. And that was uh, Notes to Trodden Weeds, uh, 1951, by Janae Bauer. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about, um, we can leave that up for, for more poems later, but do you want to explain a little bit about why you're, you were drawn to Wyeth in particular? Like, what is it about Wyeth that, that made you... Um, want to write poems about him and then what, what what were you trying to do like what how did you go about writing these poems um one of the things that i emphasize in the acrostic writer is the freedom of choice um the worst thing that a person can do in writing acrostically is have someone else choose art for her so i really encourage my students to look and find that art that they are are drawn to. And it was just what you were describing at the beginning of this talk. It was the ineffable. Do you know, you, you're looking, you're looking deeply. You don't want to cast your gaze away. You're looking, you're wondering, you're studying, you're investigating. But it's ineffable. And you go to the page freely and what comes out is strangeness and surprise and a wonderment. And so for me, 
I kept having that same experience with the work of Andrew Wyeth. There's there's a quietude. Um, I love nature. I love solitude. And essentially, he lived his whole privileged life not ever having to go to school or have a job or worried about raising the kids or making sandwiches. His job was just to explore his townships, explore his land, and paint. And so I... I I loved the the sort of the purity of that type of life and he makes art that I that I want to look at and want to explore um so so that's why so what what happened was I I was at a a writers retreat in Sitka Alaska in 2012 and I was working on a a collection of personal essays on my relationship with water and biophilia and suicide ideation and yet it was April Poetry Month, and I thought, well, hell's bells, I really should do a, do a free write every day for National Poetry Month. And so I did 15 of those for the first 15 days, and I thought, hey, I could really amp this up. And so by the end of that month, I had 45 free writes of this of the Andrew Wyeth artwork. Um, and so I came home and finished 60 more pieces. And um, so this book has kind of languished. Um, and then I had to kind of find my footing in terms of what's my point of view, what's the structure. Um, uh, his granddaughter is the executive of, her, of his estate, and she gave a talk a couple of weeks ago from Brandywine Museum. And she talked about his interest in chronology and his interest in plain air work. And um, so I'm just getting deeper and deeper into that to that space, wanting to tell this fictional story about his creative process because I find that so intriguing. And I think part of the reason, one of the reasons why I took Took Phrases is because I have artist envy and I'm still the gal who like makes stick figures. They're not even pretty stick figures. Um, so I wanted to, I want to sit on his shoulder and see what he's seen um, because he feels like a kindred spirit. So... Yeah. If anybody uh, has any questions at home, please uh, leave them in the chat windows, either on uh, Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both. I'll pass them along. But let's hear a couple more, maybe two more poems for now. And then we'll ask a couple questions from the audience, maybe. Okay, so I'll read this piece called um, Andrew Wyeth's Footnotes to Chambered Nautilus. And I did have a request from the audience. Could you um, just show the image for a little bit and then put the words up so they could read along? People like to read along. Yes, so here's the image. Her dynamic frailty is a shell without ocean. Four poster bed, its canopy hangs in pleats. She refuses sleep for the sun's course. I've painted her propped up in bed, half committed to rest and half poised to climb out the window to join the noonday orb and to let that much heal her. Scleroderma, autoimmune malady, heart, hard plus derma. Before, she'd travel miles for the best corn, freshest eggs. She reaches for the Bible, paper, and pencil like old friends. When the hands fatigue, she places the items back in the wicker basket and she turns toward the window. Sun burns the window white 
burrows into that stark room. Her gaze, not at the window. Her systems, systemic, and we suspect it won't be long now. The best way out is always through frost. An empty nautilus on the footstool at the foot of the bed. I could have painted the moment she held out both her hands when we presented it to her, peered inside, remarked on its pearl smoothness, its emptiness. I could have painted her description of its years of having been ocean weathered and the lifespan of one who once dwelled there in a tiny sea cave where it had lain sheltered and righteous. I could have painted how I actually fell in love with this woman. Held up to her ear, she perceives a rushing, swirling noise as if the ocean had deposited its sound right there in that nautilus. She's no fool. She knows it's the sound of her own body, pulsing heart, pulsing blood, heart's thud. A soothing sound, the signaling of life. Chamber, a place for bullets, a confinement. Cella, Latin for small room. When that day comes, we shall chamber her ashes into that nautilus, iridescent, and set that shell in her basket next to words forever unspoken. And that was uh, Notes on Chambered Nautilus, 1956, another poem after uh, Andrew Wyeth's paintings by Jeanne Bauer. Uh, do you want to do another one? So I will read Andrew Wise's footnotes to Distant Thunder. This also came out in Green Mountains Review. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice, frost. Realist painter, paint what's absent. Voyeur collector, composite portraits, allegiance to no one. Obliterate the disservice. Beyond the meadow, at the base of the evergreens, new ferns. Daisies spring up, alive and white, the straw-colored meadow. Before I knew it, Betsy had walked out with our Labrador. The crunch of brittle grass under her shoes, the sky above blithe light. When I see her next, she's lying in the grass. Legs in beige pants, ankles crossed, blue blouse buttoned up, arms folded over her torso. She drops the floppy hat over her face. Perched near the evergreens, Rattler will not dart off. Binoculars for bird watching beside her resting body. Blueberry brimming wooden crate and mug. When I approach, Rattler stirs not. I am unsurprised to see her supine, 
predictably full from berries flung up and mouth caught. When in the distance a clap of thunder she stirs, she rises, hesitates. I dread being seen. Betsy doesn't have to give a shit about me. She hangs the binoculars around her neck, grabs the berries and follows Rattler out. Finally, alone with my half-worked sketch, I turned to the woods where I was better known, Thoreau. And that was uh, Andrew Wyeth's Footnotes to Distant Thunder, 1961, another poem from uh, Jeanne Bauer. Um, Jeanne, uh, Richard Westheimer has an interesting question here, which goes along with what I was talking about. Um, <clears throat> he says, uh, question, how does writing to an artist's image differ from writing impelled by naturally occurring or built world images? And that's the thing that was so fascinating to me about um about that that idea that that ekphrastic poetry was parasitic because if if that's parasitic then aren't the artists parasitizing the natural world too you know i mean isn't everything parasitic it, it but but to answer to to address richard's question though how um what's the difference is there a difference between writing something um from an artist's image versus the natural world yeah, so one of the revelations that I came to when I was writing the book is um, nature writing and, and writing ekphrastically are no different. I mean, we're, 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 we're looking, we're experiencing with our body. We're in awe. Um, the words are unutterable. Uh, we are, we feel inconsequential, small. Uh, it's a, it's both it being in the museum and being out in nature are both ways in which, as T.S. Eliot says, we can extinguish the personality. Um, I love, I don't know if, if the, the listener who asked the question knows much about John Haynes, but John Haynes, um, writer John Haynes started off as a visual artist and then became, you know, well-known naturalist in Alaska. Um, but his nature writing was absolutely informed by the fact that that he was an artist. He saw, he did, he worked with his hands. Um, and, and so I love him as an example of an interdisciplinary artist who, you know, m who both made art and then wrote wrote of nature, um, both in prose and poetry and and just did it so lusciously. So no difference as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, since you, you do have a science background and there's so much science in the book, um, what do you think, um, from, from a scientific perspective, what do you think that, that creativity is? Like, why do, as human beings, why do we do this thing that we do? What is the, the, the purpose of it? And, and what's actually going on, like, cognitively in our brains as we make art after looking at, at, at um, other art like this? Um, well, I'll just, I'm going to just read this tiny, tiny paragraph in, in my book that I feel like gets at that. Um, I say, try naming the group of practitioners that I describe in this list. Persistent investigators, explorers of the mysterious, who strive for certainty and precision, users of language and creative ways to convey the ineffable, and creators of terminology. Those 
with stellar observational skills who live in a state of wonderment. These qualities describe creative writers, visual artists, and scientists. Given the similarities among the disciplines, it is not difficult to imagine a surplus of ways in which all of these practitioners can cross-pollinate. So the more I learned about um, art and science and the intersection, for me, it felt like a very natural marriage for someone like me to you know, move from one space, one space to the next. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Body Worlds, the exhibit of, of plastinated human corpses. Um, so I was invited to uh, visit that exhibit in Cologne, Germany in 2000. And I said, <clears throat> I said to my friend, no, I think I'll pass because I can't imagine making art out of the human body. And boy, was I wrong. Uh, that was a very informative moment where I just thought, okay, okay, my eyes were, were, were open to, to that intersection. Um, yeah, let's do a couple more questions um, and then maybe two more poems to wrap up. But we'll go a little bit over time, even though there's just such a rich topic. I want to sort of cover a lot. Um, so Vicky Miko asks, she says, I'm wondering if you ever write a poem and then purposely go out to find a matching scene or painting photo or painting artwork for your poem yourself. So, so do you ever, um, do it in reverse and find a, um, you know, start with the, the piece of writing and then find the, um, uh, find the painting that fits with it. Does that ever happen? I love, I love that question. So I did a little bit of work with Mary Hill Museum of Art in um, Goldendale, Washington. And one of the things that the Curator of Education does is, as I th I'm not sure if it's just during uh, the, the month of April, but she says, if you come in with a poem in your pocket, any, po any poem, get a poem, fold it up, put it in your pocket, come in, you get a discount on the entrance fee, and you get to go around the museum and find the artwork that fits with that mm. poem in your pocket. And I had never thought thought about, about that. Um, and I think it's really fantastic because then you're necessarily asking people to make connections that maybe had never been made before and how beautiful and creative that is. So that's not something that I've ever done. But now that I know about that technique, the next time I take a group of students into the museum, I'm gonna try that poem in your pocket. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because um you know, with the ecrastic challenge, one of the the secrets I think that people don't admit to is that um a lot of times I mean I don't know how often, I don't know what percentage of the submissions, but a good number are um you, you can kind of tell that they're poems that were already written and they said, "Oh, there's a cow in a field. I have a poem about a cow in a field." And um, especially, I think Danny Mask, I don't know if he's here tonight, he watches a lot of these episodes, and um, he, was, uh, he was the artist at one point. He had a photo that was for the Ekphrastic Challenge in um, February, I think it was, and he, he thought that we should make, somehow make it so we like, enforce the rule that you have to um, write a poem after, and, and, and that's what we say. But it still is interesting when, when you find a poem, even if it's already written, um, that, that fits with the, with the artwork. There's still a way that there's a dialogue, even if, if it's not um, generative in that way. Um, I don't know. It's, it's something I kind of wonder about. I, I wonder, you know, I've thought about that all through the years. We've done a, the Ekphrastic Challenge for six years, I think. And I, I've noticed that sometimes, you know, sometimes you can kind of tell, um, but then sometimes you can't because you never know where people are going to go. And we get about 500 poems every time after one piece of artwork. 
Um, so it's just fascinating to see. But I wonder if if I should care more about that or not. So that's an interesting question from Vicky uh, for that reason. Um, over on YouTube, um, uh, where was it? Oh, Mary Ellen Carr asked, because you mentioned, um, was it Ray Armentrout or, or somebody um, who, who had a, a poem um, that didn't attribute the artist to it? Um, and Mary Ellen Carr says, um, I believe you said the poem should stand alone. However, if you are an unknown poet, should you submit an ekphrastic as such, even if it's not in the call for submissions? Maybe I'm reading the wrong question. Um, should you always, I guess the question I, I found somewhere else was, should you always like acknowledge the artist? Is, is, it so, is it sort of like a faux pas or a sin or something not to acknowledge the artist, do you think? Or do you think it's okay to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's um, it's something that I, I definitely uh, treat in in the ekphrastic writer, and so so there's a lot to say. Um, in general, do we require any creative writer to talk about their their subject matter or their influence? I mean, we don't. Um, you know, we I mean, we we talk to Tim O'Brien about his experience in war, but you know, but what he says about you know the things they carry is it's it's fictionalized, um, and so you know so you know does someone have to have experienced you know abuse in order to write well of the abuse uh, of a bruise on a woman's face not necessarily and so so why as ekphrastic writers must we um give it up and be upfront with our subject matter um just to just to pique the curiosity of our readers that's that's not a good enough response um and so i would say no i mean if you're if you're quoting so for example, in the poems that I read, my Andrew Wyeth poems, you know, I was quoting Frost and I was quoting um, Thoreau. And so I absolutely had those things in quote and I put the attribution. But, you know, aside from that, um, you know, you don't need you don't need to attribute. Um, it's just it's something that that I adopted very early, early on. Every ekphrastic piece that I have written, I use the title of that painting as the title of of my piece. Um, and then underneath, I say the name of of, of the artist, and it's just just something that that I wanted to do. But what's also interesting in the ekphrastic um, writer is, you know, I gave three thirty people this assignment of, you know, here's this image, and and what I asked them to do was write ekphrastically, and I gave them either one page for a poem or a half page for a prose piece, and then it, it was interesting because I didn't mandate how they attributed it or anything, and some people did attribute, some people offered a nice epigraph, some people used the title. Of, of their piece and so it's interesting to see kind of the mix um but there is there is no wrong way to do it yeah it's interesting and just thinking about it like from a legal perspective i mean you could say if if it were if some kind of fair use was going on you'd have to cite it to uh, make it fair use but in, in the same way that you can't copyright ideas or anything like that there's no there's no fair use going on with an ekphrastic poem describing something that you saw nobody owns your thoughts after after seeing it you know so 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 it's more just a matter of the um industry standard or whatever i guess i would say um just one last question then we'll do a couple couple last poems um uh, jared wozek asks uh, what are your aspirations for the ekphrastic writer which is just a sort of a, a general question that that i'm kind of curious about too like what do you if, if you could have your your world of the future how would ekphrastic poetry or ekphrastic writing fit into it I love that question from Gerard Wozak. Um, he is also in the acrostic writer, um, and I would like to travel the world. I'd like to travel, uh, take 
groups of students into museums and galleries and help them to look very deeply and then to, to write well and associatively of, of that experience. That's what I would like to do. Yeah, have you, I mean, I'm sure you probably have, but, but it's such a great thing for a museum, like field trip, you know? Like if you brought kids to a, or an art gallery um, and you... And you said, write a poem, like pick something and write a poem about it. Um, what a great field trip that would be. Um, we, you know, I do that right before the pandemic uh, with my kids. My kids are six and 10. And we just went to a little local art gallery. And we did that. We wrote, um, we just looked at, they had to pick a painting and they either drew a picture that inspired them or they wrote a poem. And they had so much fun. And, uh, and then the pandemic came, we couldn't do it anymore. But that reminds me that we were gonna, you know, that things start to open up, maybe we'll do it again. But that but that's the kind of thing that just could bring bring art galleries and museums to life, I think, for, for field trips and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, Timothy, I would I would challenge you, um, you know, there are places that you and your kids can can visit, you know, tomorrow that you wouldn't have otherwise the opportunity. So for example, the, the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia has a really has, you know, really great you know, experiences online where you can tour that museum and look at the art. So take your kids to, to Russia tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea, actually. Um, do you want to finish out with uh, maybe two more poems from, uh, from the book? Okay, so I'm going to read this poem um, that was also, also came out in Tin House, um, Andrew Wyeth's Footnotes to Marriage. Every poem is a momentary stay against the confusion of the world, frost. Where the poetry of love lies, I will ask to sit before it. Realism. Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. Gain their trust. Ask for entrance. Paint them without waking them. Leave before dawn. In the marriage bed, two bodies under the weight of sheets, wool, quilt, coverlet. Both pink faces peek out from under cover. The arms are concealed, but do the hands touch? The wedding gown has almost entirely been eaten by moths. Her body, even in sleep, knows he is hers. His body, even in sleep, knows she is his. The ruffles line the seams of the mattress, the dark wood of the headboard. Out the window, the straw-colored field and barren trees. The morning star held sky high as lovers side by side sleep. They share this bed, although there are other beds in the house. He takes the side by the window. She has the side by the dresser. Someone turns over. Someone coughs. Someone snores. They do it together. There is no remedy for love but to love more, Thoreau. To love nearness, one has to love otherness in the dead truth of the night. I came at night to paint the marriage hour, for here is acceptance. Here is peace in each other's company. Tonight, here is a love beyond love. 
apure oculus tuos, coral, sepia, cinnamon, green, egg, buff, creosote, heather, mauve, peach. And that was Andrew Wyatt's Footnotes to Marriage, 1993. Let's do one last one to close out the show. Andrew Wyatt's Footnotes to Airborne. A single gentle rain makes the grass many shades greener. We should be blessed if we lived in the present always and took advantage of every accident that befell us. Thoreau. I had a variegated feeling and while I worked, the caw of soaring gulls overhead, sea chanters. From earth, I looked up and saw doughy white bellies, feet tucked tightly in, and the pink of unhinged jaws. Here, no wounded gulls. They remind us, lest we forget, as people are wont to do, we're near the sea. He thought that I was after him for a feather, the white one in his tail, frost. Plume, in good spirits, to feather and oar, paint a tactile sensation. A family is a type of chaos, arrows veins. A rain of waves hurls white to foam on our shore. When wind shudders the shutters against the house which gives her a start, I place my arm around her shoulders. A brewing squall outside, we sip wine from mason jars. For our main home, she brought furniture, kitchen supplies, and linens and crates of books. I don't say, well, now I'm going to go out and find something to paint. Sometimes green is too much for the spirit. When the house is still and the lake lulls the punt and the sun is aimed low on the horizon, I imagine a riot of feathers above the advance and retreat of the Atlantic. Hands do the things taught, seen before my eyes, stroke after inscrutable stroke. Excellent. That was Andrew Wyeth's footnotes to merit or no footnotes to airborne. Um, Janae Bauer, thanks so much for being a guest tonight. Just wonderful poems um, all around, and a wonderful discussion. Very inspiring for everybody at home, I think, to um, take up some McFrastic poetry. And uh, it's a really it's a great way. You know, we always talk about the McFrastic challenge at Rattle. It's just a, is a like a writer's blockbuster. You know, like if you don't have anything to write about, like writing is such a, a great thing. Um, for your soul, you know, it's for, it's a thing that that enriches your life and makes and makes sense of the world and makes things better. And um, sometimes it's hard to know what to write about. And so, if you just write ecstatic poetry, you always have something to write about because you can always flip through an art gallery brochure catalog and see what moves you. And, and then there's the, your your starting point, you know. So hopefully, everybody at home feels as inspired as I do right now. Thank you so much, Tim. This has been great. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, thanks a lot, and have a great night. You too. Bye. Yeah, that was Janae Bauer uh, with uh, The Ekphrastic Writer, her newest book. Um, you can find more of uh, Janae 
on our website. It's Janae Bauer. That's J-A-N-E-E-B-A-U-G-H-E-R.com. You can find the Ekphrastic writer, her most recent book, um, and uh, check it out because it's really it's something that you can uh, do a lot with. It's, a, it's the kind of book that you engage and interact with. So do check it out. Um, now we're going to be going to the open lines in just a second. Um, and the open lines, once again, can be anything you want to share. The prompt for this week, I'll put it up on the screen really quick. There's this week's prompt. Write a poem that starts and ends with the same line. <clears throat> that was the prompt for this week. So you have a poem like that. Feel free to share that. The numbers are... Um, you put these on screen, too. How you do that, if you'd like to send in a poem, send it to openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com. Uh, then you can either give me a phone call if you'd like to just hear on voice, 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times, then hang up. I will call you back when it's your turn, like Guy Chambers is calling right now. Uh, but I'll call Guy back later. I'll call you back right after Guy if you call right now. Um, the other option is if you'd like to be on video, uh, use Skype. Uh, and that's Rattle Poetry, all one word. Um, that is uh, Rattle Poetry, all one word. So just send me a chat message there. Just say, hey, I'd like to share a poem. Um, if, you, if you haven't connected before, I'll wave back, and then I'll call you up through Skype when it's your turn, and you can appear on video too. Um, now, let me go. We're going to take a really quick break like we always do. Um, but as I, I'll put up the screen for next week's guest when I, as I do that. Uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be... Tanya Kohong. And Tanya has been in a couple issues of Rattle. Uh, she's a LA-based writer. I think she lives in New York City now, but when I knew her, when I met her first, she was in LA. Um, her newest book is The War Still Within, Poems of the Korean Diaspora. So it's going to be a very interesting topic to talk about. Um, she's sort of a champion of um, Korean authors. And uh, just a, a wonderful writer in person, too. That's going to be Rattlecast number 91 next week with Tanya Kohong. Now I'm going to take a 30 second break, uh, just get everything situated, get my legs stretched out. You guys can fill up your uh, beverages of choice or whatever you got going on. And I will see you in just a moment. Thanks so much for your patience as I get everything set up. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people calling in. Uh, we'll get to as many people as we can. we got about an hour. I can go a little bit over uh, over the two-hour mark and then squeeze it down for the podcast version a little bit. Uh, but let me show you. Let's see. So the prompt, as I mentioned, was to write a poem that begins and ends. Let me get this a little bigger, too. It's a little small. That's good. Oh, there we go. Okay, oh, so write a poem that starts and ends with the same line. And then my poem is so hot off the presses that I, uh, I don't even have it in this PDF that I usually make here. But the, uh, the Ekphrastic Challenge deadline is um, coming up on Friday. So you still have time to write a poem for the Ekphrastic Challenge this week. And I usually I don't share my Ekphrastic Challenge poem. Sometimes I write it myself just for fun. Uh, but this one, I think, is a strange enough take. I don't want to influence people where they go with it. Uh, but this was the ekphrastic, uh, ekphrastic challenge. Let me uh, put this up here. Where's the right one? Yeah. So this is the image that we're doing this week. This is by Jojo, a French artist. And it's the most abstract ekphrastic challenge piece we've had um, in a long time. Or if maybe maybe ever. And I thought I would run with a... Um, 
my own little ekphrastic challenge poem based on this it seemed like a good challenge and i wanted to give myself a good challenge so my tiny little poem this is deep inside the nsa inspired by that uh by that uh piece by jojo deep inside the nsa on a chalkboard that isn't there but in concept drawn in chalk that isn't chalk but code the strands of photons are stranded high under the warehouse dome and a thousand lines intersect at the point of you being nothing but a network node hovering in hologram a web in the air on a chalkboard that isn't there there is my both ekphrastic challenge poem and uh beginning and ending with the same line on a chalkboard that isn't there. Uh, So that was my poem for this week. Megan, um, of course, did hers ahead of time. And uh, hers was The Storm. Here we go. This is The Storm. Uh, The Storm. Breathe. Count to ten. Say, I am safe. Outside, the wind drives the birds away. Inside, I'm pacing the halls, clutching the piece of paper that reads panic attack coping strategies. Do you sometimes feel as if you are dying? A heart can withstand a lot, the doctor said. You'd be surprised how a body bends like a tree in a hurricane. Branches scrape the windows, my palms wet with rain. What animal has a storm within you driven away? I watch a squirrel scurry for shelter. She can't stop what's coming. Remember, you are not really in danger. Focus on the fibers of the carpet, a quiet forest. Focus on the gleam of the wood banister, a still lake. Look outside and see how what rages also sleeps. Breathe. Count to ten. Say, I am safe. Another great poem by Megan, as always, The Storm. That was Megan's poem for the week. Uh, now let's see what you have for us. Um, I think, let's see. Let's call up first. Just go in the order they were received. I don't see any brand new names, uh, but we do have, let's see. Oh, no. They signed me out of open mic again. Let me sign myself back in. Okay. Okay. Let's call up first. Um, Let's call up first Jared Lacey. Hey, Jared, you're live on the air. How are you doing today? I'm doing great tonight. How about yourself, Tim? I'm doing good. What do you have to share with us? Okay, I thought I participated in, in this uh, in this uh, prompt poem thing here. I thought I'd give it a go. Uh, the name of the poem I'm going to be uh, reciting tonight is Put on One. It is just basically my interpretation of the haves and have-nots and how the have-nots are always uh, the ones who are you know, supporting everybody else who has, you know, <laughs> that has, I guess you could put it that way. Excellent. Well, let's hear it. This is put on one, right? Put on one. Yes, Excellent. Sir. Go ahead, whenever you're ready. Uh, sure. All right. There's a Cretans concede that there are people who believe that struggle on one side gives interest to all life indeed. The blast of sickness that brought on this assessment sneezes on each and every witness, but not everyone is wiping. Here is all the lighting on one side that has more movements than wind and water instructed by lightning and every advice on speed. And turn to how stress becomes a commodity over there to be collected where all the movement is. Cotton in one pillowcase and bricks fill the other, 
while the latter is told to appreciate the one in their possession. Attention starved are the beneficiaries that swing and lean on, on hyperbole. And if they're studied carefully without damage to any of the obvious senses, there might just be a hint of leech and lizard. None of those heads low over there is viewed as prerogatives for any of them here. They've been dying for eras in their minds. Winning isn't famed for fairness through their births. Pain, anxiety is over there, but explored through relief's vision where imbalance lives and intervenes. Not even how everyone breathes is split by these thieves. There is a credence conceived that there are people who believe that struggle on one side gives interest to all life indeed. And that was put on one. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thanks so much, Jared. Always a pleasure. No problem. You have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that was, uh, let me get this fixed. There was, uh, yeah, Jared Lacey with Put On One. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jared. Always a pleasure talking to you. Let's go with Gordon Coppola. Hey, Gordon, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. Thanks, man. Yeah, so what do you have for us? I've got a, uh, a poem with a first and last line that are the same that I uh, thought I'd share with you today. It's called Out of Thoughts. Excellent. Well, I got, I got ready. Go ahead whenever you are. Let me turn off my other thing there. there oh, yeah, go. that's right. I should remind everybody uh, that uh, I calling from the future, so there's two Tims if you uh, don't hang up your stream. So uh, everybody's got to do that. I couldn't hear it, though, in the background. So you were kind of okay, but still confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's called Out of Thoughts. The cube is tan and always arriving tomorrow. We'll speak no more of triangles. They're sad. You won't forget days that bring circular elements, a sphere within a cube. Tan on the pinkish bronze beach. They do stack nice. Noisy, two-dimensional cubes remain in dreams. A cube's generic name is laid aside. Revel in anticipation. The cube is tan and always arriving. Oh, that was an interesting one. I got to read that again or listen to that again in in, pre, in, uh, in the replay. This is a fascinating, tight little poem. Thanks for sharing that, Gordon. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Have, yep, a, good have a good night. Now, I didn't ask, but where the heck is Gordon where it's still like a bright, sunny day outside? Uh, okay, let's go to Brent Stauffer. Hello. Hey, Brent. How you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You had a little creak there. It sounded like a door opening in like a creepy oh, oh. old house or something. <laughs> like a, it's, no, it's it's this old chair. Nice. Yeah, I got yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I have to, I yeah. sit very still. And if I move, yeah, okay. I mute. <laughs> so, um, and actually, I had it on mute so much. I got like a cold and I had a, a coughing fit. I don't know if anybody heard. No, I think I, 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 think I hit it. Um, let me yeah. try to find, where's your, uh, oh, there you are. Oh, okay, I got good. you, gone. Uh, is there anything you want to yeah, say about it before yeah, you yeah. read it? Oh, um, just that, um, I guess, um, that, uh, that, uh, well, um, if anybody doesn't know, American beauties are, are a type of rose, so... That's and there's other stuff, but I'm not gonna go into all the stuff. So <laughs> okay, here, well, go go ahead and read it whenever you want. Then okay, cool. Gone. 
Away, away, my love has gone away across the million murmuring white teeth of the yawning restless ocean. I look for her among the watermelons and in the dirt under my boots, but find only Whitman, weary of hide-and-seek. I found her still steaming black coffee in Mahler's Adagietto. I found her coat hanging inside the roses we had planted. Each year brings its lack of calls or letters. I let the American beauty shrivel and die. Away, away, my love has gone away. Ah, excellent poem. Thanks so much. It's, yeah, it's cool to these ones where they repeat. They, uh, they, I don't know if they feel like tight and complete when they repeat like that. I like the I like the format. Yeah, it's uh, there's a there's a, a a sense of closure. Yeah, that, uh, and, and it's I really was, nice. There, there is, and I was looking through like my old poems and books and stuff, trying to find if I'd ever done that before because I was like I was like really behind. Mm. I thought maybe I could sneak in an old poem, and I'd never done it before. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I had to write one really quick. But uh, it's a cool. Oh, yours, I like it. Yours, yours, yours was excellent. And you killed two birds with one stone, which was very excellent, very, well, very clever. I it thought. was a last last ditch effort. Thanks, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a good one, Brent. All right, thanks, Tim. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Have a good one. It was Brent Stoffer with Gone, and uh, let's try. Let's try TR processing. It says TR's here, so we'll see if we get the connection this time and she has an ekphrastic poem here after Winslow Homer if it if it doesn't connect this time I'll just read it hey TR I think we got you now hi Tim can you hear me I can we got no video if you want to come on video but we I, we hear you're live on the air and here you come on video too hello how are you I'm good how are you doing tonight Good. I have to run and go grab my poem. It'll take like 30 seconds. Okay. Well, I'm going to show the audience um, this Winslow Homer painting that you were writing about. Well, uh, so this is Winslow Homer's The Gulf Stream. And uh, that is the the poem that T.R. Paulson is writing about here. Uh, let's go back to T.R. So I was just showing everybody that the painting, the Winslow Homer painting that this ekphrastic poem was written about. This is Winslow Homer. You're good. You're good. Okay. Okay. So, so uh, was this published somewhere? It looks uh, the formatting is very fancy. It looks like it was published somewhere already. Yeah, it was published in um, the True Literary Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually get guest edited by another rattled contributor, Tracy Knapp. Ah, okay, cool. Um, so that was a lot of fun to be in the same journal that she guest edited. Um, and we actually had a party this afternoon where we, a zoom party where like a lunch reading. So this will oh, be the cool. second time today I'm reading the poem. <laughs> so it was sort of coincidental. I took off work to do it so I could do that reading and it just worked out. Oh, that's, that's perfect. The, yeah. The, uh, do you want to say anything about like why you chose this poem to write about or, or what you were going after or the background of, of it? Um, it was more, I went to the Met, which is where that, where the painting is. And I just fell in love with that painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess, I mean, it, sometimes you just fall in love with something and you have to write a poem about it. Very cool. But it was like, eight, like I first wrote the first draft of it like eight years ago. It's, mm-hmm. and it's an old poem that finally found a home. Awesome. I'm so glad it did find a home. Let's hear it right now. Put it on screen for everybody. The Gulf Stream. Here in a trough of wind-stormed water, a boat 
rocks, a man on board reclines, his hand grasps a sugar cane as a master would hold a nap or whip. A sail or dirty cloak lies near the mast base, sharp as broken teeth. A distant schooner claims a ray of light, and two clouds resemble lovers. Though a water spark looms, a ruiner of hope already lost. Look closer. Blood trembles as whitecaps slap the hull and peaks of chop rise up with dorsal fins. You call the outlook dark, life cruel, that godlit rescue liner put in after. See the man, the backdrop of gold-laced clouds, his face turned a book unread. I think he wants to give a shark a shiner. Ah, that's great. I think he wants to give a shark a shiner. Excellent poem. Is that a sonnet? Is that the right number of lines? Yeah, it's a sonnet that has this, the rhymes are slanted a bit. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, T.R. Always a pleasure. I love, love, your, yeah. love your work. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Have a good night. You too. Bye. That was uh, T.R. Paulson with uh, the Gulf Stream after Winslow Homer. And actually, let me show you this picture one more time just to, as we go. There, there's that painting by Winslow Homer. Okay, let's see. Who should we call next? Let's call up Gene Burson. <clears throat> Gene hasn't been on in a while. Hello. Hey, Gene, how you doing? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. You are live on the air. What do you want to share with us today? Uh, I'd like to read a poem uh, called Sheltering in Place on New Year's Eve. Excellent. And is there anything you want to uh, say about about the poem before you read it, where it came from, or anything like that? Uh, it's um, it doesn't it wasn't written to match your challenge, but um, uh, <clears throat> it's something I was working on for a, a month or so. Um, I'll just read it. It can follow it, I think. So it's called. Uh, I sent you a, a email. I don't know if you can put it up or not. Yeah, I'm trying to get it. Hang on one second. This is a... Okay, so I have it now. Sheltering in place on New Year's Eve. A lifelong swimmer, I currently spend time underwater in a larval stage, crawling, barely moving, nudged by the current, appearing to disappear, passive movement, part of my disguise. Feigning unconsciousness, incommunicado, mumbling to myself in Portuguese, playing chess with water snails, caressed by my own tail, charting through the magnifying surface the first star of Bethlehem in 800 years, in case the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn might speak to me. Through the microphones in my bloodstream, Picking up flights of swallows, glancing off vectors we can't see. Among water weeds swaying, a creature with only a dim idea of what it is. I hide in reflections, switching one for another. The sun overhead, rocking in ripples while grotesque silhouettes of dragonfly larvae in black armor slinking through warped shadows keep me on my toes to detect in the slightest quiver threatening intent. In such amniotic suspense, anything can happen. Birth, death, 
I'm thrown onto a screen, unprotected and exposed by self-obliterating need, a creature with only a dim idea of what it is, no claim beyond my next action, my inner life dancing into oblivion, spent in the act of becoming. The timing is merciless, mistakes and some successes forgotten in the rush. The tune turns on the note played. Casualties lie everywhere. But for now, I am quarantined in the straitjacket of an obsolete shell that must stay intact a little longer, a makeshift womb before the living womb evolved, decoding genetic hieroglyphs under abalone skies swirling to nurture an unknown self in separate communion with those I cannot see, counting on others to suffer their own isolation, pressured by their own becoming, every being forced to stay where it is in a world where nothing stays the same, humanly indulging the dangerous strategy that our destinies will change because of our secret desires. We share the most insufficient filiates, but still, creatures with only a dim idea of what they are, manage to dream their wings into being, recognize what they are when they meet without masks. It's best not to get too far ahead, raindrops, rolling to each leaf tip and falling one world after another into the stream are not in any panic to get there I'm learning to sing screaming underwater into the ear of the planet alone in my room outside in utero sheltering within a minor subjective visible and invisible, shuffling the deck of mimicry, the scene, a screen for the unseen, in a world of clues. Excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, okay. Gene Burson. And uh, yeah, I love the, the pacing of that. And some great lines in there too, Gene. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was... Uh, Gene Burson with Sheltering in Place on New Year's Eve. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Gene. Let's see. <clears throat> Let's go to, hopefully, hopefully Nivedita's still there because she does have to go to work. Let's get to Nivy. Hey, Nivy, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing good. Um, and, and how are things, uh, I mean, how are things around you with the pandemic right now? Cause the Pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. I uh, we're, actually pretty bad. Like we're literally surrounded by, I don't know how many cases right now, but next door, upstairs, downstairs, like literally everybody in the apartment complex. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah. Do you have a you don't have a common air thing, do you? Um, not exactly. I mean, we do have common mm-hmm. areas in between in the ground, but then we don't go down there because we don't know how many people are actually using the elevators and things like yeah. that. So it's it's a bit tricky. Yeah, I bet we're basically well, stuck in 
in the house. Yeah, stay safe for sure. We're, we're having our website redone professionally for the first time. And uh, all the mm-hmm. engineers are in India and um, they all have COVID. They're all like there's three people on the team and they all have they're all out right now. It's scary. I, I think this time around, India is suffering a whole lot more than it did last time. Around. Last time we sort of managed to escape the brunt of it. But this time it's like brunt times infinity for India. Like. Everywhere you turn, somebody has COVID. And this time it's even more severe here because of the new variants that we have that the fatalities are much higher this time, which is what I think is making everybody more worried. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you work in a hospital too or do you work somewhere different? Um, I actually work as a reviewer, mm-hmm. peer reviewer for papers like science and medical papers and journals. So I can basically work from anywhere and I currently work from home because of the COVID situation. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's get uh, let's get to your poem now. What, what do you have for us? Um, it's a prompt poem, as always. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's titled The Victor and it's basically sort of a contest between dark and light and the memories we wish to remember and those we wish to forget and about how it never works out the way we want it to. Perfect. Well, go ahead whenever you're ready and read it. Thank you. The victor. Darkness versus light. Who will win? With sleep comes darkness, and darkness brings remembrances. Despite banishing these thoughts to the twilight corners of my mind, like the dawn, they always return and shine brighter than before. Like the dusk, my thoughts dim and disappear, getting darker than before, despite wishing for these to come into the sunlight. The darkness holds sway and refuses to leave, even while we are wide awake. Darkness versus light. Who will win? Excellent poem, Naveen. That and that uh, that echoes too with what's going on now. Hope, hopefully, uh, you stay well and stay safe. Thank you, Tim. Hope you stay safe too, and all the entire Rattle Group family and members who read on this show. Yeah, just, for sure. Just praying for everybody to be safe. For sure. Thanks, Navy. Thank you, Tim. Have a lovely evening. Yep. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. It's Navy DeCarthic uh, with the Victor. Um, let's see, who should we call next? Let's call up Spartacos. Hey, Spartacos, good to see you today. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great. Uh, what do you have to share with us? Um, I've got a poem, uh, a prompt poem, but it's also about um, Adam Toledo. Ah. Um, so shall I start reading it? Yeah, yeah, why don't you go ahead? Mm-hmm. Sweetheart, remember to come home early. Remember, remember that you can call me Adam Toledo or whatever you like. I say to my friend Ruben in my dream. You know what, Ruben, I'm yours to command. Give me your orders. We are both playful grown-ups that want to become famous actors Maybe Stallone or Schwarzenegger. I wear a Nike hoodie that says, just do it. And I look at you, Ruben, with a goofy smile. I keep my hands in my pockets all the time. Otherwise, they will be cold and I will be frozen in time. Ruben, life is a bitch. I did not do well in math. My teacher gave us countless exercises of dividing decimals. The only things I was counting were the minutes before school finished 
and life started. My parents want me to become a lawyer. I would like to admit that. What time can you make it? I ask. Let's meet outside McDonald's at eight, you say, and I feel happy. Hey, Adam, you say, let's play cops and robbers with our mates. Say yes, Adam, you say. I want my team to be the robbers, you say. I will bring my toy gun. We meet again, Ruben, and you have a real gun for a criminal mastermind. Hide the gun. Hide yourself, you order me. It's, a, it's your show time, you say. Then I know that I'm not Adam, but David, and the police officer chase me like Goliath. It's my show time without beginning, end, purpose, and limits. I'm staring back into his fierce eyes, and I can see only hate. I listen to his voice. Stop. Stop right. Now. Hands. Hands. Show me your hands. His voice feels part of a pornographic movie. Before I hear the noise of a bullet choosing its accurate path. Hey, Ruben, who will win in this game? I want to ask you, but you are not there to hold my hand. Eric, I still remember you. Shouting to me, stay away. How can I stay awake in my dream? Eric, you cannot hear me. Eric, you cannot reverse motion. Eric, whisper to me. No one wins in this dark alley. On TV Chicago, Mayor announces that, simply put, we failed, Adam. I agree 100% because exam results in math depend on interpretation. And you are not going to change the heart of a young boy shattered like a mirror into a thousand pieces. I want to become a ninja. Not a law-abiding citizen. Eric, my mates, will not stop playing games late at night because I had to wake up early. No one wins in my dream, Eric. No one wins in this lost game. Remember, remember that. Excellent poem. You always have such great lines. How can I stay awake in my dream? There's always this like simple, wonderful lines in your poems. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Spartacus Anagnostris. And thanks for including your last name this time, too, so I could say it. Thanks, Spartacus. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Yep, have a good night. Yeah, that was Spartacus Anagnostris with Sweetheart, Remember to Come Home Early. And uh, let's see. We have a couple more people left. We have, um, let's call up Guy Chambers. I talked to Guy now? No, I talked to Gene. Let's call up Guy Chambers. Let's have Vicky Miko, Sally Dunn. Are you there, guy? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Ah, good. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Do you have a poem yeah. to share? Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for getting me on the air again here. I sure appreciate it. Yeah, I got this poem here I call Freelancing Traveler. Freelancing Traveler. Okay, let me pull it up here. Yeah, I have it right here. Freelancing Traveler. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? No, Mike, I just some I've written some before because everybody gets this feeling every once in a while, but somebody's behind you or somebody's talking to you, but nobody's there. So, 
So this is a poem I've written about it. It's called Freelancing Traveler. Excellent. Well, go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Eternal visionary engulf invisibility. A body once used to be a traveler crossing the threshold of the unheard. Not living, not dying, loose, moving freely, mysteriously, a puzzling supernatural, foreshadowing the living, whispering in the ears, jostling the, with the souls, sway people's vision without knowing or awareness, freelancing, a profound secret in a world between the lines. When you get that feeling that somebody's watching you, but nobody's there. Hear a voice with nobody around. It's a freelancer. Catch a glimpse of the traveler in a corner of your eyes. Slowly you be lured away across the threshold of the unheard to be a freelancing traveler, eternal visionary. Thank you. Yeah, great poem, Guy. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, and that, that was a creepy poem, which yeah. uh, brings me back, because I, uh, I always want this show to be a little bit like the old Art Bell shows with the guest callers. That's kind of one of my goals. And, oh, yeah. Uh, that was a great Art Bell-type creepy poem. Thanks for sharing that, Guy. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah. See you later. Yep, have Bye. a good night. Bye. It was Guy Chambers with Freelancing Traveler, and uh, the, the big picture window on the other side of the desk now is darkness, and there could be... A freelancing traveler looking out inside the window at me anytime I can tell. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that, guy. Uh, let's call up next. We have like 12 minutes left. <clears throat> let's call up. Where was... um? I'm going to see if uh, we can call up Vicky Miko because we... Because the last time we decided just to do the phone. So, Vicky, I'm going to just call you up on the phone, Okay. And hopefully you can answer, because the, the Skype, the connection wasn't good enough. And hopefully Vicky will answer. I'm not sure if this was planned or not, but we have another great um, Haiga from Vicky. And we'll see if uh, if she answers. Hi there, Tim. Hey, Vicky, how you doing? I'm so glad you answered. I didn't know if you wanted me to call you or not, but... Um... No, that, no, this is great. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is terrific. And uh, this rattlecast was terrific, and I'm really loving all these poems. I I, um, uh, I like your thoughts about Art Bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just wish. I mean, I love I love those because I worked a lot of overnight shifts at the at a at a yeah, group oh, home, yeah. and um, so you know, I just had to stay awake it was my main job most of the night unless something bad happened. And so I listened to that Art Bell for like four hours every night, and uh, it was one of my dreams to have an Art Bell type show. Uh, for poetry. So, so hopefully we're making oh. it like that. I wish we could do it at midnight, but nobody would be awake, I don't think. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's another idea for another another uh, uh, rattle cast. You know, maybe we should have like a, a spooky Halloween creepy cast at midnight. Oh, God. That, yeah, that would be really cool. We should. Let's do, let's, let, I'll, I'll, that's in my head now. I'm going to plan on that. Um, so okay, what, do you, what do you have to shoot? Above. Okay. Um, I... It's from a picture that I took on uh, at Square Mile Park. They have a couple of ponds there. It's in Fountain Valley, and there's always good picture taking there. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's from. And it's just a short, a short one. 
A dream begins where a dream ends. A dream begins. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. And that photo, I mean, for, uh, I already told everybody on, um, li- just listening on the uh, podcast version to come and watch YouTube. Here's another reason. Cause that's a great photo. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. How did you, in Photoshop, you sort of, um, it, it was a regular photo and then you um, sort of cartoonized it? Yes. I, t- I take, I have like millions of photos that mm-hmm. I take. And uh, this is the one that I, um, picked when I asked Janae about um, finding a, a picture for a poem. <laughs> so this is the one that I found. So oh. I, I, um, um, it, it's a, yeah, it's photoshopped and it's really, really fun to do that with photos. Yeah. We, I should have asked about, you know, cause Haiga is such a, it, it's kind of an ekphrastic uh, type poetry that existed for hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, we really had the concept. Yeah, well, it's I'm going to get that book. It's just fascinating, and it's wow. Well, I learned I learned a lot just listening to both of you. Both of you, you're such a, a terrific interviewer too. I love to listen to both of you guys. Well, thanks for saying that, Vicky. And the and the audio is great, so we can just do it over the phone anytime you want to share anything. Uh, this this okay. works. This works for sure. Okay, terrific. Okay. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night, and stay safe, everybody. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. That was Vicky Miko with uh, A Dream Begins, Where a Dream Ends, A Dream Begins. It's a great, great uh, haiku and haiga. Um, let's see. We are, let's call up Patricia Rockwood. And, and let's do Richard Westheimer again. Richard Westheimer says, I've read a lot lately, but uh, I don't care. So let's call up, uh, let's call up Patricia Rockwood and, um, oh, Sally Dunn too. Let's just try to get to... And then, yeah, okay. Let's just try to get to everybody. I want to do that tonight. Let's call up Patricia Rockwood right now. <clears throat> hey, Patricia. Hey, Tom. I think I got to push the camera button, too, if you want to be on air. Yeah, as soon as this square gets out of the way. Okay, there I am. Got it? Great, there you are. Yeah, good to see you. Uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, thanks. Great show today. Yeah, this is a fun one. I'd be interested in it, but I'm fascinated, and I have to get that book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely a kind of book that you, you generate a lot of poetry from. Um, let me see if I can get this. Let's see. Cause last time, there it is. It worked this time. Okay. So I have the poem up. Uh, is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Uh, yeah, I was inspired by um, the poem that you published today. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the day it was by Patty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Patty yeah. Seaburn. Yeah. Uh, the the guy who put the ashes of his father in the bowling ball. Mm-hmm. So I started to think about my father, and I'm I'm just starting to to start to write poems about my family. Um, I um, I heard Billy Collins say a few weeks ago uh, after reading a poem about his grandparents, he said you shouldn't write poems about your grandparents. Uh, in fact, you shouldn't write poems about anybody except yourself. And um, and his poem about his grandparents was just fabulous, of course. And but he said you shouldn't write poems about anybody except yourself. Um, so I went ahead and wrote a poem about my father. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it's a poem about myself. So I think I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hear it. Okay. Um, it's called My Father. When my father died, he had been sick for a while. I shouldn't have been surprised, 
But still, sitting in the church with my family and all his friends, so many of them, singing those familiar hymns and hearing those familiar words, I felt a strange thing, as if the upper left corner of my world, my life, had been taken out, like when you bite the corner of a sandwich and you see the jagged edges in a half circle. It was like that when my father died. A very touching poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yep. Good night. yep, you too. That was Patricia Rockwood with my father. Um, and another great example of the way that repeating the uh, first line is the last line really works. Um, I think the only two we have left, I, I believe, are Sally Dunn and uh, Richard Westheimer. So let's get to both of those really quick. Hey, Sally, how you doing tonight? Doing okay. You always take me off guard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. Um, so what do you have to share with us, though, tonight? Uh, yeah, so I did the prompt poem, and I, I wrote it the, uh, you know, the day of, uh, you know, last week's mm-hmm. uh, show. And um, I had in my mind the prompt, but also the uh, big news of the day, which was uh, uh, Chavez um, being found guilty of yeah. murdering. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that's how this poem came about. Okay, well, go ahead and read it. I have it up for everybody at home. Okay. Uh, four twenty. 21. Can I breathe tonight? Please? Breathe now? One in, one out. A wave crashes in the dead of night. A mile away, a hundred miles, a thousand. Who could breathe tonight? Is it allowed? Is it safe now? One in, one out. Can I breathe tonight? Please? Oh, excellent little poem there for uh, for twenty twenty one. Thanks for sharing that, Sally. Thank you. Yep. Have a good night. Uh, you too. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, let's really quick jump over to Richard Westheimer. Hey, Richard, how you doing this evening? Hey, Tim. Uh, what uh, do you have to share with us today? Uh, so this was both a prompt poem and a poet's respond poem, and. A formal poem all together. Oh, wow. Is, is it something you submitted? Um, yeah, yeah, I submitted on Friday okay. uh, at Pantoom for Wretched Excess. Okay, let me find it then. And that's sort of the cheating aspect of it because <laughs> Pantoom, it's going to start and end with the same line. It does. Yeah, that's another thing I thought of it. Like, what what was that form that starts and ends the same line? I, but then I, yeah. <laughs> that's so pretty close. <clears throat> okay, uh, so, so, so yeah, this is it. not a great poem to end the evening on because it's gruesome, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, gruesome has its place. Has its place. Uh, and just briefly, while you're pulling it up, it's uh, it's about that Tesla crash where the bodies were just sort of, uh, where no one was driving the car. There was somebody in the front seat, passenger, and somebody in the back seat. And yeah, well, yeah. What well, what happened with that? So they, so people were just in the back seat, letting autopilot do it by itself, and then it crashed. Is uh, that what happened? So the problem is, of course, Tesla is not letting go with the. Uh, metrics that were broadcast to them so all they found were somebody was in the back seat somebody was in the passenger seat and this is impossible to do there 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 it can only be done if somebody sort of hot wired their car oh yeah hmm. over road things and i can just imagine these two guys going hey you know watch this uh, <laughs> yeah you must have because i and i even have the the in my car there's the eyesight that subaru has and it keeps you in the lane 
But as soon as you take your hands off the wheel, it, it turns off and says, hands on the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm yeah, sure I, Tesla has a billion sensors to know if there's a sudden driver sensors. or not. Yeah. But these are not the only two smart guys to figure mm-hmm. out that they could uh, they could bypass it. But yeah. they, they they ended up and, – and the other problem is, of course – not of course, but the lithium-ion batteries are really hard to put out once they catch fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's hear this poem. I have it ready. Okay. Okay. Tesla car with no one in the driver's seat crashed into a tree in Texas and burst into flames. Pantoum for wretched excess. No one was driving the car when it crashed, burst into flames, igniting two men in a steel cage pyre. The causes of death unclear. The bodies not yet matched due to the intensity of the fire. Fused in the flames of a steel cage pyre, one in back, one riding shotgun in their fancy new car, four hours to extinguish the ion-fueled fire, terror on their faces erased, their bodies so charred. These men riding shotgun in their fancy new car left wives in their driveways, shaking their heads, the horror they'd face seeing their men's bodies charred. To drive with no driver never made sense. The wives in their driveways looked up with dread, knew when they saw the hellfire rage. To drive with no driver never made sense, knew then, know now, their world was ablaze. Before we all saw this hellfire rage, before seeing metal and men's bodies alloyed, before those flames spread, the world was ablaze with man boys and their obsessive fetish with toys. We weep for the horror of bodies alloyed as we burn with the excess that underlies grief. I admit to my own obsession with toys, I indulge them even as sorrows increase. It's wretched excess that underlies grief, the calamity clear. The end results match, indulgence even as sorrows increase. It was all of us driving the car when it crashed. Yeah, great poem. Uh, gruesome, but but a good one. And um, have you ever driven in a Tesla, Richard? To be the boys and their toys. You know, I, I do have I do have a Prius Prime, which gets about thirty miles on a on a charge, um, but it's not. You know, it doesn't yeah, have. The- the Tesla. I was just going to say the Tesla. I, I only drove as a passenger and once, and oh my god! Like I think Tesla drivers like know how much they can freak people out by flooring it. The acceleration. Yeah. It's like a. I mean, it's like a roller coaster at Disneyland or something. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. and it should not be. I don't know. That shouldn't be on the road, in my opinion. But anyway, oh, well, these we should stick to the Prius. I think. But anyway, thanks, Richard, for sharing that. Uh, thanks, Tim. Good to see you. Yep. Have a good even night. Fro- even frozen. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm I'm frozen for you, but I'm I'm live for everybody else. So that's okay. okay. Thanks. Okay, bye, Richard. Bye. Okay, let me let me close out the show. I'm going to read um or share a poem by uh, next week's poet. I meant to do that and I kind of forgot. <clears throat> so let me do that. Let's do um the first poem we published by Tanya Co. Yeah, Ko Hong. She goes. She originally went just by Tanya Ko. I have to change this on this poem. But here's a poem from next week's guest, Tanya Ko Hong, from Rattle Number Forty Six. 
Uh, there's a note at the bottom. Yeobo means darling or honey, a Korean term of endearment. And so here is uh, Tanya Ko's poem to close out the show from rattle number uh, 46, like I said. Dear Yobo. Here we go. Dear Yobo. 당신께 당신이 라면하면 전 라면이 되지요. 당신이 차하면 차가 되고 당신이 옷을 벗으면 저도 옷을 벗어요. 제 마음만 잡으면 되는 것 잡은 승선에게 더 이상 먹이를 주지 않는 것. 전 괜찮으니 죽기 전에 찾으세요. 비열여보. When you say ramen, then I am ramen. When you say tea, I am tea. When you take off your clothes, then I take off my clothes. If I could live on my senses, I'll be no trouble. You don't give food to the fish you've caught. You no longer need to hold me. Please, drink your tea. And that was Dear Yaobo uh, from Tani Kohong uh, from Rattle Number 46, uh, first in Korean and then in English. Uh, so it's going to be a really interesting show talking about the Korean diaspora next week. That's uh, next week's guest. But let me show you first the uh, prompt for next week. And I thought um, I didn't go with Megan's prompt because I was inspired by reading the um, ekphrastic challenge or um, the ekphrastic writer that we were looking at earlier today, uh, Janae Bauer's book. And uh, she mentioned ekphrastic poems written after the Rorschach test. And I thought it'd be fun. And here's the prompt for next week. Um, oops, we got to get rid of all this stuff. Um, here is the prompt for next week. Write an ekphrastic poem after one of the ten cards from Hermann Rorschach's original 1921 inkblot test. And there's a link there. I'll put the link in the show notes, just the Wikipedia page uh, for the Rorschach test. That's R-O-R-S-C-H-A-C-H test. If you Google that, you'll find the Wikipedia page, which has the uh, pictures of the ten original cards from the Rorschach test. Pick one of those and write a poem about it, an ekphrastic poem about uh, the Rorschach's cards, those original ten, one of them. Um, or you could write you know, a, a sectional poem about all ten or something like that. So let's see uh, what you can come up with based on the Rorschach test. That is your, your uh, prompt for next week. And as I mentioned, next week's guest is that poet you just heard, Tanya Kohong. Her newest book is The War Still Within. Uh, she's talking about the poems about the uh, Korean diaspora. That'll be Rattlecast number 91, Tuesday, May 4th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Like always, hope to see you then, and hope you have a good night. Stay safe out there, everybody. Good night.